Welcome to HealthCom Central, where we unpack theories and frameworks that can help you create more effective communication to improve both health outcomes and health equity. I'm your host, Karen Hilliard, behavioral scientist and longtime communication practitioner. If you're looking for fresh approaches that get real results, you are in the right place. So let's get started. Hello, HealthCom nerds and HealthCom novices. Welcome to another episode of HealthCom Central. I'm so glad that you pressed play today. This is our 24th regular episode today, which is really exciting. The holidays were a little crazy for the podcasting schedule, and I want to give a big shout out to my fabulous podcast editor for her patience with me, but hopefully we're back on track for weekly episode drops at this point. Today, I'm going to share a technique with you that is a simple and research-proven way to strengthen your messages in campaigns. As all of you know, one of the biggest challenges that we face as communicators is the fact that there are so many competing messages, so many competing voices out there, and often there is misinformation, disinformation, or perhaps just some attractive alternative behavior that's being promoted to people that is going to compete for their time and attention, compete with the behavior that you want them to engage in. We have to remember, of course, that our messages aren't coming to people in a vacuum. It's really vying for their attention alongside a lot of other stuff. Another thing that is also true in communication is that when we're developing a message or campaign, it's really important to build and then to reinforce our own credibility as sources. And of course, reinforce the credibility of the message itself. Ideally, we also want to be the first ones out there with a message because we know from research that primacy, that is what someone has heard first, gives our message or our campaign a real advantage compared to others. There are also some advantages, of course, to recency, the thing that people heard most recently, and to repetition, something that people have heard most often. But primacy, getting out there first, getting into people's minds first, is really important. It's one reason that for so long, the motto of CDC's crisis and emergency risk communication work was be first, be right, be credible. Because being first makes a difference, and it actually enhances credibility as well. Back again to my original point, you know that even when people perceive you as a source or your organization as a source as being very credible, even when the message seems credible to people, you know that people are still going to go out and after they've heard your message, they're going to be exposed to lots of other ones, lots of competing messages. And, you know, it's almost like you wish that you could just immunize them or inoculate them against what they're going to hear so that when they hear it, they have some kind of defense. Well, guess what? There is a way to do that. You can construct your messages using something called inoculation theory. Talking last week in last week's episode about McGuire's communication persuasion or input-output matrix made me think about inoculation theory because it was actually also developed by McGuire. He developed a lot of different things in communication that are really good, but these are two of the best. So I wanted to talk with you this week about inoculation theory because it is absolutely something that you're going to want to incorporate in your own work right away. 
It pairs really well with other behavior change theories, with other process theories, etc. I'm going to speak at a very high level about inoculation theory here today, but as always, I'm going to link in the episode notes to some of the research that will help you really dig in and understand this theory even more deeply. The name inoculation theory may bring to mind immunization or vaccination. And coincidentally, I used it in some of my earliest work, which was about vaccination behavior. And I felt like I always had to explain it to people and be like, well, yeah, it's called inoculation theory. That doesn't necessarily have anything to do with vaccinations. So let me assure you now, inoculation theory can be used for any health topic, for any topic at all. Even though it's especially helpful in much of the work that we do in public health, it's something that, in fact, corporate marketers and advertisers use all the time in their own messages and campaigns. Now, before we jump in, I have one other caveat for my communication scholars out there. Inoculation theory has nothing to do with something called the hypodermic needle theory of communications. Now, if you've had a course in mass communication that covered any mass comm history, that concept, that hypodermic needle theory of communication may come to mind for you now. For those that need a refresher on that, even though that idea has been fully debunked, it comes from the very early days of mass communication when mass communication media were brand new. And a lot of researchers thought, oh, mass communication is going to be so powerful in persuading people. It's almost going to be like injecting someone with a serum, like in some sci-fi movie where you inject them and they're just going to do whatever you want, sort of turning them into compliant zombies who always obey the messages. For those of us in behavior change communication, that would certainly make our jobs a lot easier, although I'm not really sure that an outcome of a world of zombies is one that any of us would be happy with. However, hypodermic needle theory turned out not to be supported by any evidence. And what I want to emphasize here is it has nothing to do with inoculation theory. So let's talk about inoculation theory. What is it? Basically, it is a theory that explains how someone's attitude or belief can be protected against persuasion or influence by others in the future, sort of the same way that your body can be protected against disease by an inoculation. And just like an inoculation or vaccination, the way inoculation theory works is that it provides pre-exposure to a weakened version of a stronger future threat, right? So think about how vaccination works. It has some kind of usually inactive virus, but it has a little bit of the virus DNA in the vaccine. And that gives your body a chance to be exposed to it and to develop resistance to it before you actually get confronted by the real disease. So that pre-exposure to the threat really revs up your immune system. Well, it does the same thing in a communication sense. In this case, it helps someone become familiar with a conflicting idea or objection, something that conflicts with the message that you are giving them, the persuasive message. And it helps them to understand and mentally rehearse how they're going to respond to it in advance so that when they're actually confronted with that objection or that conflicting idea in reality, they're resistant to it. So how do you use it? Well, the idea is pretty simple, really. You prepare your audience in advance 
by raising some potential objections or conflicting messages right alongside your persuasive message, where you want to anticipate what you think your audience is going to hear in terms of conflicting messages. And by anticipating those and including them in what you are communicating, then your audience will have already heard them. They'll already know how to dispel those conflicting messages, and they're much less likely to be influenced by them. So let me give you a couple quick examples. Let's say that you're trying to persuade people to engage in the behavior of getting a colonoscopy. And let's say that you're using the idea of empowerment to motivate people that, you know, knowledge is power. Hopefully that's based on some research that you've done with your audience where you know that that is an important value to them. So now you need to anticipate what some of the conflicting messages or objections might be to this behavior. What are people going to hear so that they can be better prepared to refute those ideas? When it comes to a colonoscopy, perhaps people are going to hear that the prep for a colonoscopy is unpleasant and time-consuming and terrible, and this will lead them to put off doing the behavior. Now, the people who say that it's unpleasant are not wrong, but what you want to do is build mental resistance to the idea that unpleasantness is a reason to avoid getting a colonoscopy. So you might include in your initial message something about the idea of prepping for a colonoscopy isn't the most fun thing in the world, but for most people, it's one day out of your life every 10 years. And for most people, it's totally worth it to give up one day out of every decade to get a few more decades of cancer-free living. So again, you're getting somebody to think about what a likely objection would be to engaging in this behavior and to have a counter argument ready for it, even if it's just in their own mind. Now, let me give you another example. Let's say that you're doing policy systems and environmental change work. You're trying to change the conditions that lead people to engage in or not engage in certain health behaviors. And maybe you are trying to persuade community decision makers to invest in public transit. Maybe you're doing it based on research that shows that public transportation has all kinds of economic benefits from attracting business investment and enticing both younger and older residents, attracting tourists, attracting shoppers, that sort of thing. You could sell it to the policymaker based on that idea. But then the policymaker is going to go out and they're going to start talking to people and maybe something that they'll hear from their constituents or even something that's in the back of their own mind will be, well... I would never take public transportation. I want to be able to drive. I'm going to be driving my own car. I'm never going to get on a train or a bus, right? They're probably going to hear that from people. So instead of just giving them the positive message and pretending that there are no objections, instead, you want to be sure that along with your message, you prepare them by saying something like, it's true, not everyone will want to take public transit, and that's okay. It's still a great investment for everyone. Diverting people off the road and onto trains or buses reduces traffic congestion for those who continue to drive. So it's a win-win for everyone. So in this case, you're going to provide your audience with ways to refute negative things by providing them with something that in the research literature is called a refutational counter-argument. So basically, what do they say if somebody raises the objection? So you see what I've done here is... If I incorporate this into a message, then I've been the first one to raise this objection for them and to give them something that's going to mentally help them resist persuasion from the other side. And it may even help them make the argument to other people as well. 
it also automatically increases the credibility of your message because you're not hiding anything from them. Now, you can take this even one step further in something called a two-sided message, which is where the negative part of the objection is actually the central part of your message. You actually start there. And it's so refreshingly authentic and honest that it increases your credibility even more. So if you admit the shortcomings up front and then you pair it with a positive message right after that, you're taking inoculation theory one step further. Let me give you an example with the public transit message. And by the way, I'm totally making up these numbers, but stick with me for the example. So let's say you could have a message that would say, studies show that when cities build public transit, 30% of the drivers will never take it. So that starts out sounding like it's going to be a negative message. But if you paired it with something else right away, it can have a positive impact. So let's say that I begin with studies show that when cities build public transit, 30% of drivers will never take it, but 70% of people will at least part of the time. And that's enough to reduce congestion on the roads for people who are diehard drivers while getting all of the benefits that public transit brings to a community, including greater business investment, access to a larger pool of workers, more shoppers and tourists, plus people looking to put down roots near a community where public transit is available, like millennials, Gen Z, and retirees. When you take a negative argument and let it see the light of day, what you're really doing is taking it off the table. It loses its punch. And if it does get raised by the other side, your audience knows how to resist it. It's simple, but it's beautiful. Now, let me talk to you about an objection that I sometimes hear to using inoculation theory. Sometimes people will worry that, oh, you're dwelling too much on the negative, or they'll say, well, we don't want to put those ideas in people's heads. But believe me, If you don't raise those issues, don't you think people with competing messages are going to bring up all of those negatives? Because let me tell you, they are. And the question really comes down to whether or not you want your audience to hear it first from them and be like, oh, gee, I never thought of that. Or, huh, I wonder why they didn't mention that. Or I wonder if they were trying to hide something. All those doubts that they will have about your message and your credibility when some other source raises these arguments. Or instead, do you want them to hear those arguments against the behavior and be able to go, well, actually, and then be able to refute it with one of the counter arguments that you've already given to them. Your ability to raise some of these negatives and to make them part of your initial message to purposely inoculate people is going to mean that you will have to know what those negatives are. So you can't neglect that part of your formative research. Some of the negatives are going to be barriers that you legitimately need to help people overcome in the first place. But secondly, even if those barriers and arguments are something that you can't do anything directly about, you still want to think about how to counteract it, how to give people the information up front to diffuse that argument against whatever it is that you want them to do. Make it your job as a health communicator, not only to know and communicate every reason someone might want to engage in the behavior, but also all the reasons why they might not want to. And then be able to acknowledge some of those reasons, but give people the tools and the words to overcome those objections and to resist conflicting messages. Now, I haven't gotten into a lot of the technical bits behind inoculation theory. This is just a very high-level overview. 
If you want to learn more, there is a ton of good research out there, not only on how inoculation theory works, but on two-sided messages. By the way, the most famous early case of two-sided messages was one with the car rental company Avis, where they led with a very successful message that said, yeah, we're not the number one car rental company. And that sounds like a negative, but they paired it with a positive message and the slogan, that means we try harder. And then they elaborated on all the ways that they were trying to win over people's business, you know, by having cleaner cars and lower prices and better customer service and so on. And it was a very successful campaign. It's been well studied in advertising. And since then, the idea of two-sided messages has been well studied in health communication as well. I've got a link to that in the episode notes and a link to a couple of inoculation theory studies. So take a look for those. If you've been hesitant to acknowledge competing messages or to anticipate audience objections, let me encourage you now to get comfortable with it. Using inoculation theory to strengthen your messages, you are not planting the seed of doubt. You're planting the seed of resistance to doubt. And in an era of competing messages and misinformation and disinformation, inoculating your audience may be critical to successful behavior change. That is all for this week's episode. Hope you've enjoyed it. And I would love to hear how you are using inoculation theory in your own work. Please do find HealthCom Central on Instagram or LinkedIn and send us a message. And please, if you're enjoying the show, leave us a rating and review. We'll have another episode for you next week. In the meantime, stay well, stay safe, and stay science-based. Bye for now. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment now to leave a rating and review. Be sure to subscribe to HealthCom Central on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have friends and colleagues who should be part of our community, please share the link.